the ability to gather, the ability to sing together, the ability to walk across the room, the ability to just have this day. We'll not gain tomorrow back. We can redeem the time in many ways. You can do that in our life, but we won't live again in yesterday. But today, Lord, we have a shot. Today, we have a chance. Today, with your power, we can make a difference living in us, Lord. I just pray as we continue, as these songs, as we sing them, Lord, they not only come out of our mouth and out of our head, they come out of the depths of our soul. Our cry to you, our proclamation of who you are, not only happens in this room, but happens everywhere we go. Lord, thank you for this time. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is great to be back in the valley in some ways. I love being up at Christopher Creek. That's where we were for the last few days. And our men are about, I guess, still about 25, 30, I don't know, somewhere in there still up there. Uh, and they're coming home today. And I, it was just awesome. I, I, I appreciate Vince and Kent. And even though they're not here today, just appreciate what they have done and led our men not only on a weekly basis, in many ways, Kent does that leading our Bible study, but also just putting together this trip. It was phenomenal. Had a chance to... Christopher Creek's one of my favorite places in the, in the state, uh, that area up there, and I had a chance to uh, sleep out under the stars the other night, and it was pretty awesome until about 4.30 in the morning when the elk started bugling. That made, that made it a little hard, and they don't just do it like every 30 or 40 minutes, like every four minutes, okay? It is, uh, it's, it's great. So, uh, and played about... I think we had two tournaments of cornhole yesterday. I think it took us about three hours to do that. That was pretty awesome with cheering section and booing sections and <laughs> smack talking sections. It, it, it was great. It was great. So, but anyway, and there were some spiritual things that happened in all this too. There actually was, but it was great. And I just know the guys are still there now meeting right now and we headed home in a little bit. Acts 17 is where we're going to go today. If you want to go ahead and mark your Bible, or we'll have it on the screen here in a minute, we'll read that, Acts 17, 1 through 15. But as, uh, I just appreciate Dr. Dan last week and, and preaching. Andy finished a, 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 preached a couple of weeks ago leading into this specific passage of Scripture where Paul and Silas leave Philippi. And that's what's happening here. And they travel. I think it's, I, I was trying to, I'd already done my research, but I thought I'll just look it up again and make sure where I am on all this, just to, just to do a disclaimer here, uh, and trying to make sure I'm on, right on as many facts as I can. And uh, my internet was down this morning. You know what? When your internet goes down, it's hard to find things anymore. You know, it's kind of a, especially in a, in a pinch, it's hard to find those. But anyway, so I was working on it. But about 100 miles or so, perhaps a three, two to three day journey uh, from Philippi to Thessalonica. It's where we're going to talk about today in, in, in Thessalonica and the city of Berea. The city of Thessalonica, the best I could tell, is a city of around 200,000 people. It was an important city for several reasons. One of the reasons is it was on, directly on the Ignatian Highway, which is, if you know about the Romans, one of the reasons when Jesus came to earth in the fullness of time, one of the reasons it was so specific is, I believe, is because the Romans had had prepared the way even though they didn't know it. Okay, they had prepared this unbelievable road system and paved, I mean, this is phenomenal for that time, what they had done. And there was a, basically a highway, Ignatian Highway, that went from Italy to Asia, basically, from Rome to 
eventually Constantinople, I guess, would be the place where there was that, and there were cities along the way, and Thessalonica was on that highway. Uh, kind of a cosmopolitan, multicultural uh, city, and probably one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire or that, of that day. So here is where Paul and Silas end up. And as they do, as they normally do, they're going to do what? They're going to preach. They are going to preach, and they're going to preach with risk always lurking, as you know. I've said it before here. Paul, wherever Paul shows up, there ends up being a riot. There wasn't a riot before, but because Paul shows up, there almost becomes a riot. Okay, so that's kind of the life that Paul lived and what he challenged people with. And as you know, if you know, and you, most of you know, if you know your, your scripture, you know that Paul will eventually write two letters to the, the church at Thessalonica and then one to Philippi also. But Acts 17 is where we're going to go this morning. And if you, actually, if you turn there or if not, it should be up on the screen behind me. There it is, yes. And I'm going to butcher some words, so let's just go on past that. No, when Paul and his companions had passed through that town and the other town, no, Apollonia. Uh, they came to Thessalonica uh, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. I like that. They rounded up some bad characters. Now, I don't know sure if, you, if you wear a shirt that says that, they, or you did things that put you in that, but bad characters. Not just bad character, but bad characters. I, I like that. So, from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot. There you go, right? In a city, in the city. They rushed to Jason's house. And, to, and I could go into all that, but, but we won't camp there today. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas, Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason. Jason, Jason, Jason. And some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all the world have now come to our town. They've come here. There's an issue with that. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They all are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and others post-bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and, men, and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowd and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left him with instructions, left instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. We're going to kind of split this up a little bit. We're going to talk about Thessalonica. We're going to talk about Berea. 
and we're going to come back and kind of combine the two together, hopefully before it's all over with. But in Thessalonica, Paul preached, it says here, three Sabbath days. Now, it doesn't say necessarily they preached three days, three Sabbaths in a row, so we don't know exactly how all that fits. But we know we've got a couple of letters to the church at Thessalonica, so there are some things that kind of help us get a little more, uh, even from Paul's perspective of what happened. But he apparently spent some time there, maybe a few months or several months. But I love what second, and, and, and you look at that and go, well, it only says he preached three Sabbaths. So he spent several months. So what was he doing the rest of the time? You know, it's kind of like when I got in the ministry. You know, people used to ask me, you know, Pastor, I know you're here on Sunday, but what do you do the rest of the week? What, what do you, do you? And, and, and it's kind of that, what do you do with your rest of your week? That's, and you only work one day a week. So what's the deal with this full-time thing? The Second Thessalonians 3, 7, and 8, Paul writes to the to them to tell them that in case they forgot said for you yourselves know you ought to follow our example we were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone else's food without paying for it on the contrary we worked day and night laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you so Paul tells us what he was doing and I would guess if we looked at other places he went and we he was probably doing that there too. He was a tent maker by trade, so was he making tents? Was he doing that kind of work to make sure he had finances so he wouldn't be a burden to them? Great chance of that. But in verse 2, it says this. And I'll just read the whole thing. So it was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue on three Sabbath days, which I've mentioned. He reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, just a point of reference here, I, I just the, the stumbling block for the Jews was not that a Messiah was going to come, it was the one that Paul was explaining to them that was going to have to die and be resurrected again it was an enormous stumbling block to them. So Paul now, the word says, and I want to make sure you understand, and this is where all of us need to go too, that Paul, Paul used as his reference point God's Word. Now, he didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He didn't have the New Testament. But what he did, he didn't have to, to explain to these people what they already were familiar with, which, which was, was the story of all the way through of the Jewish, not even before they were the chosen people in that context, of Jesus being throughout that Scripture. He could go to that, and they were familiar with that. So he's taught from that. Paul could have taught, of course, and he probably did, as, we'll, 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 as I'll mention here. He taught from his own experience. He could talk about the Damascus Road to experience, experience. He could talk about what things happened to him when he was blind, but now he saw after Ananias. He could talk about he and Silas just a week or two before were in prison, and the jail doors, what, bust open. And, and he could talk about the healings that he had seen. He could talk about his experiences, but his filter, though, his reference point was the Word. He discussed. I love this word here. said he reasoned with them. He explained to them. He proved to them. 
I believe Paul was willing to sit there maybe all day long, who knows, into the night and dialogue with them from their questions, asking. And some, you know, were not trying to go to the right place. They were trying to trip him up. Some actually were seeking probably to go, if this is true, if, if it really is true, I need to ask more questions. But there are some sitting there, as we know, we end up with a riot, don't we? We know there's some sitting there probably going, let's figure out a way we can trip him up. Let's don't figure out a way that it could be true. Let's try to figure out a way, even if it is true, let's don't let it be true here. And I think it's one of the challenges we have as Christians many times. We're not willing to be questioned. We're not willing to sit and dialogue. Because we're afraid we may get tripped up. We're afraid we may not know the answer. I've said for years, when somebody asks me uh, a question, I don't know the answer. You know what I tell them? I don't know the answer to that. I really do. <laughs> I say this, though. But if you really want to know the answer, you genuinely want to know the answer to that question, I don't know it. I can't explain it. I don't even have a reference point for it. But if you really want to know, I'll journey with you to try to figure this out. But if you're just doing it to try to make a point, then I'm not going to go that route. But if you genuinely want to know, I believe probably in the last few thousand years, somebody's probably asked the question somewhere. And probably somebody's got an answer to it. Of course, there may be multiple answers to that question, and why we have so many different churches sitting around. But anyway, but I'm not afraid of the question. We want to be a church here as time goes on. We've been talking about it through some of the things about discipleship. Well, you know how to, you know the apologetics, but I'm saying this day and age, I believe apologetics are not enough anymore. Would have been 50 years ago, maybe, 40 years ago, even 30 years ago. It's not today. So we want to give you that, that, that tool in your tool belt or in your tool bag, but there needs to be other things that go with it. One of them is the ability to know how to reason. Part of that is we have been, we have, I think we have taken the whole idea of reasoning out of culture. It's just it's, to be able to dialogue with somebody that differs with you, it's almost been totally obliterated in our culture. I think it's intentional by a specific few actually, because I think most people wouldn't mind sitting around and talking through things. But enough overarching inundation that we're, we're all separate, we're all, let's all get in our own tribes, and let's all don't talk about it, just draw your walls up, throw your walls up. And if you're passionate enough about it, if you're emotional enough about it, you must be, you must be right. If I can ratchet up enough emotion on a conversation, enough passion about it, then I, I, I'm pretty confident I'm right on that. It happens in people's homes. It happens in marriages. That emotionalism is the go-to. If I can get enough emotion in the conversation, I don't have to have facts. And my go-to is, on top of that is, I will start using inflammatory language if I have to. I will, I will shame you. I will put you in a box. I will, I will shove you right there and you can't come out because I'll keep shout, shouting you down till you shut up. So we've taken reason out. We've taken dialogue out. 
in so many ways in our culture. But I believe Paul taught much like Jesus, and Jesus was the great teacher, Jesus used parables of contemporary things, things that would be familiar with those people right there. He used those illustrations. And I, I think about it this way, and I'm sure Paul did too. He reasoned them with them from a contemporary standpoint. What I, I think about it, maybe I'm wrong in this, but my illustration is Jesus was trying to give them a window to see in or see out, whichever way. If you're trapped in a house and there's no windows, Jesus is going to build you a window to start seeing out. He's going to tell you a story to give you a window into something. And so Paul taught, he discussed, he explained, he reasoned. Let me say this, folks. Christians can be just as guilty on this issue about emotionalism without facts. This is not a that side or this side. Because we can take our belief of reality and wrap it in our version and our lens of how we look at the world and shut off all our other information and go, I'm just there. And the reality is you can go to enough churches nowadays that may reinforce some of the things that you just want to believe and they'll tell you yeah, sure, we're good with you on that. But because someone tells you it's okay, or you're convinced yourself it's okay, does not make it okay in line with God's righteousness. It just doesn't. So we've got to continue to ask the questions, continue to challenge our own selves, let alone being able to have conversations with people that are either Close to God, because who is Paul talking to here in, in so many ways? Sure, there's a ton of Jews, I mean Jews, ton of Greeks that are coming to Christ here. The Word says it, but he's having a real problem with who? The people who had the truth. That's who he's got the problem with. It's not these God-fearing Greeks he's got the problem with. It's the people who add information that can't download some of that information that needs to get out of their head. Or they're not willing to do what? Connect the dots. As Paul is explaining, this Messiah, this is the way he came. I'm going to show you in the text, this is how he came. But you go, no, that is not the Messiah I'm looking for. And you shut it down. And I think Paul is Jesus in reasoning. One of the things they're trying to do, which I think would benefit all of us, is To get to the truth about something, we have to try to find common ground. Even if it's as small as common ground. Let's start somewhere where we agree on something. Let's don't start where we don't agree on something. Let's start because you may find out that 85% of what you, what you, what, what, 85% you agree with, 90%. But there's that part that may keep you a little ways, but at least you started somewhere Instead of starting with everything we disagree with. But I'll tell you this though. It's like a tape measure. If we start, we've got to start. If if you you and I are going to build a house together, we've got to start from the same place. You can't be convinced 
that a half inch on this is three quarters of an inch on yours. I mean, you can't even say it's a sixteenth more. Because a sixteenth off over time with enough cuts is wrong. And it's disastrous to great construction. You got to go, okay, when we start building, we all agree that a foot is 12 inches. Do we agree on that? Okay, but we can, at least we can start from there. Now, how we angle that or brace that or do that, that may be different, but we better start from this. So we got to find where the shared reality is, and that's one thing that Paul, obviously, I, I'm sure he said, I was a Jew. Oh, I, I, I've been trained as the best. I was raised up in it. Not that he's not a Jew then, but I'm just saying, but, he, but he's saying, I don't know, he tried to find common ground. Then he reasoned. And I'm sure he used experience, he used a lot of other things. But Scripture was his base, was his filter. One of the things we use around here, and I call it the quasi-quadrilateral, it's a Wesleyan, do we have that slide? There it is. And we use it, we talked it, taught it in Uncommon, and the reason why I say, first off, Wesley did not come up with a quadrilateral. He, he, through his teaching and the way he looked at things, it was kind of formed together. He actually is, an, his background being Anglican, he added the part of experience where the Anglican background was, had reason and tradition and then uh, Scripture, but Scripture is the filter. It is the foundation. You could flip it over and it'd be a triangle. Whichever way you want to go with it, it doesn't really matter to me, but I, I do it this way. But, and the reason I do quasi is because I take a lot of liberties and I don't want John Wesley stuck with my liberties, okay? And what I mean by that is when I sit down with somebody to talk through things, especially people that may be far away from God or even people who are, who, are, who are believers that are wrestling through, I use this as my filter quickly. What does my experience say about even spiritual things, but even on a specific topic even? That's the reason I do it quasi a little more because I take it even more personal on a social issue maybe. What does reason say? What would reason say about that particular thing? What does tradition even... In some ways, historical. What is the backdrop? Are there places we can connect first before I even get to Scripture? I know where I'm going. I am always going to base my truth on Scripture, filtered through Scripture. But many people, their last filter is their ideology or worldview. Okay, that's what they're finally going to... It's, it could be a political thing. It could be, you know, it could be a lot of different... It could be a lifestyle. It could be whatever... How they, how they look at their final filter before they look at getting to truth. But here's the deal. I can have an experience and it be a true experience but not be truth. Oh, I know of pastors who've left their spouses because they believe God said. And in their mind, they convinced themselves they were right and true. But if you bring that puppy over here through Scripture, you ain't going to have a leg to stand on it may be true for you in that moment, that experience. So how do we get this mindset of reasoning with people? Well, one thing I'm going to say, you need to know God's Word. <laughs> you need to have that Word deep within you so you know how to ultimately filter it. But understand your life. What, I, I loved what we did yesterday. A, a, a part of what was the exercise yesterday is to go back through your life and remember Remember, 
Remember, remember this decade. Remember, what in that decade did God show you? Remember this. But it's about remembering. Reason. You know, reason can take you to an emotional point. There's nothing wrong with emotion. I'm not talking about you know passion. I, when I, there's nothing wrong with that. But emotionalism overtakes your train of thought. And it shuts down if you're not careful reasoning. So you've got to be really careful. So you can take that down. So just, just, just kind of a, a backdrop for that. One of the things I hope we're able to do someday, I wish we could do an elective, uh, a four-week, and we talked about that, just on how to reason with people. It just, I mean, from we talk about in crucial conversations. We've taught that. We'll be taught, teaching more on that. But how to take the word all that and how to reason. Would that be beneficial? Just how to reason with people? It may save somebody's marriage. <laughs> but especially when it comes to the, to the biggest thing of all is eternity and the kingdom advancing. Well, they get run out of town again. Seems to be a theme in their lives. And many of us would have stopped, right? If we'd have been run out of, time that, run out of town that many times, and had riots that many times, been beaten and been imprisoned, we'd have probably quit. But they marched on. I don't even think it crossed their mind anymore to, to, to stop. But they end up in a town. I say end up. They knew where they were going. But they end up at Berea. And, and the scripture here says the, that the Bereans were different. They were more noble than the Thessalonians. Now, you look at that and go, was that nobility in the sense of they had, you know, was there a... Was that placed on them? Were they, you know, as far as the crown? But, but as I dug into it a little more, this is the NIV, it talks about it. It means they were more fair-minded. Now they're open, tolerant, generous. They came to the table opposite of the Thessalonians, especially the Jewish Thessalonians, in the fact that they were closed-minded already. When you have blind prejudice towards something, which apparently the Jewish Thessalonians probably did, it prevents us from fairly weighing all the facts. To be prejudiced, I talked about this about six weeks ago, the whole idea of being prejudiced. To prejudge someone without sufficient information. And we're all prone to it, because again, I'll repeat again, when we get there, it slams the door on reasoning and dialogue. It just slams it shut. You might as well have to go ahead and put screws into it, put a big old bar across it. <laughs> it's shut. Because it is easier, I will confess, to generalize and judge. It's easier for me to deflect truth from my life. It's just easier. Have you ever applied a scrutiny to other people that you would never apply to yourself? Jesus calls that, I think, uh, the splinter in the beam principle. Pull the splinter out of your own eye before you, pull, pull, before you point out the splinter in your, in your neighbor's eye, pull the beam out of your own eye. What I love about this is the Bereans engage without prejudice. They were eager 
I thought, man, I want to preach. You know, you hear a lot of small groups. You hear bookstores called Berean. And you hear a lot of small groups called the Berean small groups. Or well, there's a reason because they came with expectation. They came with eagerness. They came with the knowledge of Scripture. And what I love about this, they took that knowledge of Scripture and questioned Paul. They compared what Paul was saying to the Word. Paul's saying, this Messiah's got to come this way. This is what... And they're going, oh my goodness, holy cow, he's right. Because I engaged it. I looked into it. And when I did, guess what I found? I found truth. Not just my preconceived, not just what my Messiah I was looking for. I found the true Messiah. And he changed him. What I love about this passage of Scripture, I'm going to guess Paul talked about Pentecost. Because I'm going to guess these well-trained, probably well-educated men and women, they had studied the Greek philosophers. They knew all that and all their practices that were even immoral on top, not just the fact of their thought. And they found them empty. Can you believe that? Then they were God-fearing, so they came to the synagogue and they were with the Jewish people and they looked at that and said, hey, I think they're on to something, I'm going to guess. They're on to something. How there was a problem, though, this burdensome legal stuff that they put on you makes it almost harder than the other one. Found empty. But here comes Paul and Silas riding into town. Here comes Paul and Silas teaching the good news, teaching the gospel, and talks about the day of Pentecost. Not only Jesus coming, I'm going to guess, and I'm not, I may be wrong, but I'm guessing when this happened, he's talking about Pentecost too. That when Christ came, and the Holy Spirit came and infilled the, the early church and began to move, he made a point going, guess what, guys? This God we serve, there's neither male nor female. There's neither free nor slave. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither rich nor poor. We're all the same. We come at the same place. No longer just rabbis. No longer, no longer just the prophets, but sons and daughters. They would experience this outpouring of the Spirit. Older and younger, my, the old man will dream dreams. You've got to think, they're sitting there hearing this. They've just now compared Scripture going, he's on to something. And then Paul says, and there's this infilling that can happen in you. That bring. You want to know why? When you receive that kind of news? So it's hard for us today to receive that going, oh, okay, another sermon. I mean, not them. The Christian church was the first institution in history to bring together on equal footing, footing Jews and Gentiles, free and slave, men and women. Can I just have a little bit of an amen on that? We actually brought something to the world, and we still can. We just got to get our head where it needs to be, Okay. I love this. 
The word says, these men have come to our town, and you know who they are? They're the guys that are turning the world upside down. Instead of asking the question, hey, what are they doing, man? I want to get in it. Now let's try to kill them. These guys are revolutionary. They're coming and flipping the world upside down. But what all of us know today is, I hope we do, they actually were not turning the world upside down. They were flipping the world right side up. The fall flipped it upside down. And we've been fighting that ever since. And I'm telling you, all governments that have ever come, the great technology we have, the great sciences we have, have done nothing to deal with that issue. Only Jesus Christ, Him coming to this earth, and Him coming and living in your heart, are you changed. That turns the world upside down? No, it turns it right side up. And what I love is that some of the Jews, some of the Jews, verse 4 says, back to Thessalonica, because we didn't get a letter about Berea, so we'll just go back to Thessalonica. But some of the Jews were persuaded in verse 4 and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. The word persuaded here, the word persuaded means to believe and obey. Not just believe. I think we fill churches across America in just believing. We've lost our power. Well, I'll just bring sacrifice. Well, I think obedience happens to top that in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 1, I want to read the whole chapter here and we'll be out of here. Not out of here, we're going to take communion, but we'll be out of this part of it. Paul and Silas, Timothy, and Timothy, to the church of, Thess- of the Thessalonians and God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace be with you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you don't know, that's where our mission statement for renovation comes from is that verse right there. Here we go. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he, was, he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. That's critical. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, you, for you welcomed the message of the, uh, uh, in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became the model to all believers. You became the influencers of that time. And Macedonia and Achaia, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Wouldn't you like that to be your, your epitaph on your church someday when God goes, brings us all home on the last part of it? You were known everywhere because of your faith and deep conviction. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, even though he just did. Uh, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Where the Spirit is at work, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. And that means individuals. That means groups of people. I believe something shifts in our lives when we welcome the Holy Spirit in with power and deep conviction. Back to truth. How do you deal with truth? How how do you deal with it? 
Are you prejudiced? You shut it down? Are you willing to surrender to God no matter if you disagree with Him and it's not what you thought it was going to be? Are you offended easily? Do people tiptoe around you? If so, you are dangerously vulnerable. But the sad part is you think you're still in control. I love what Gene Fant says, and we'll put that up. He said, the funny thing about truth is that it exists apart from human understanding. It's the ultimate question of if a tree falls in a forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? It mistakes the human part of the phenomenon for the ultimate test of reality. The truth is that the earth circled the sun completely apart from the human perception that the reverse was true. The truth is that atoms have worked in specific ways long before we had the technology that allowed us to understand that, their properties. In the end, truth is never created. It is merely discovered. The trick is, what do we do when we are forced or we are faced with that truth? December 13, 1986, when I gave my life to Christ, Jesus Christ did not become, it was not true this, that day that he became Savior of the world. He was a Savior of the world before I came to figure it out. It didn't become true the day I figured it out. It was already true. And that's what changed everything. Are you like the Thessalonican, the people of Thessalonica, the religious Jews, who said, no, I got my own perception, I'm done. I don't need any more information. Or you're like the Bereans, came with eagerness and a desire to hear the truth and to be changed. 